guy called Neil Atkinson, Neil Atkins, who still DJs a little bit today, and he's still a friend of mine, and another guy called Taffy. They were the kind of two predominant DJs of this little circle of of um, of characters. So, um, and as I said, they, I mean, they were phenomenal DJs. Neil particularly was a, you know, he was a, a real connoisseur of his music. He, you know, and and he, you know, he evolved into more of a jazzy sound, and you know, he was he was a, a a great influence, to be honest with you. Fantastic, you know, a f- fantastic character and a great, you know, a great music man. And, you know, for many years when we were doing the Chuff Chuff parties and the Money Pennies events, he would be one of the DJs that would play the alternative area. So we had always had two rooms, um, uh, particularly at Chuff Chuff, a, a little bit later at Money Pennies when, they, when uh, the club um, created a second room. But, you know, he was always on our, our list of DJs that would play um, again because he was just he was just such a um, – his music was just, again, far-reaching in terms of the sounds and, and, and his influences. And that's, and that's, you know, that's important because you have a plethora of sound, and I knew that about your, your club. Um, wasn't just based on house music you had different styles going on in two rooms that i remember um but taking us from the river side of it and of course the success begins step by step people don't realize the amount of years that go into it they don't realize the amount of years that go into it they don't realize the backstory as well that you're dealing with so i know if you're making that kind of money for these promoters, it, the light bulbs are going on going, you know what? We can do this ourselves. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, I suppose at, at that particular time, it, the, the events that we were putting on were more of an extension to our social life, really. It wasn't necessarily the, the um, it wasn't necessarily driven totally by the financial gain because we, we, we were, we had our own business that was doing reasonably okay. But yes, you know, when we saw the opportunity for the, you know, when, when, when we were selling out the boat trips very, very quickly, we were soon sort of onto the idea of, hang on a minute, we need to, uh, we need to look at bigger venues and need to look at um, establishing that concept in a slightly different manner, other than just simply a little bit of fun on the river. <laughs> so yes, absolutely. Well, then, I guess Chuff Chuffs become part of the secondary part to what is later starting Miss Money Pennies. When you guys, when, when you guys venture to the idea of actually creating this new brand off the Chuff Chuff. Okay, well, I mean, I suppose a little bit of context about Chuff Chuff and how that evolved. I mean, from the rivers, from the riverboat, which was, again, as I said, an extension to our social life, we start, We realised that there was a network of people that were around us. You know, there was people from various parts of the country that were coming to these events, and they became key to how we established um, an audience or a, a bigger audience so that there would be people that would bring people from Coventry, which was relatively close, Northampton, Nottingham, um, uh, Sheffield, uh, Leeds, so all of a sudden Manchester, so all of a sudden there was little pockets of people that were starting to kind of uh, connect with what we were doing, and consequently we had to look for bigger venues. 
But what we realised, I think, as a result of what was going on in the racing, so we were quite lucky because we had we had an ongoing situation which was quite easy to be for, for us to quite easily be able to not only um, get feedback the kids that were going to the raves and getting what was negative and positive, but also um, we could come up with concepts that were slightly different to what um, what was going on in the rave scene. And plus, we were avid club people anyway, so we were, you know, not only doing doing the um, the holiday destinations, and as particularly initially was Greece, so we were sort of um, seeing what was going on in these parts. And later, a little bit later, so I suppose the late 80s would have been a beta. So we were seeing that there was something that could be developed that was a little bit more sophisticated, I suppose, than what was being offered by the rave scene, which fundamentally, as I said, became more and more a, a money a money-making machine. So we kind of took a step back from what um what these guys were doing and I suppose evaluated what the mistakes they were making and tried to develop something as a result of the influences that we gained from the club experiences we had and try to amalgamate that into the concept that became Chuff Chuff, which was, um, and, and yes, we used some of the principles that were were, were uh, associated with the racing. So for example, the um, the early Chuff Chuffs, you know, we, we would try and source really interesting venues. So there would be um, country hotels or, um, stately homes, uh, uh, schools we use. So lots of interesting venues that wouldn't, wouldn't, even, uh, uh, wouldn't even have been considered by the rave organisers, which were just looking for massive fields so they could just get as many people in as they possibly could. So we held back on numbers and tried to create within an environment that was a little bit interesting and... Um, and also, I suppose because we were because we were in the front line in terms of having a shop, handpicked the type of people that we wanted to go to the events, and um, that allowed us to take advantage of a um, take advantage of a scene that was, I suppose, in some respects, kind of losing its way because it was fundamentally uh, run as a money-making exercise, whereas, as I said, our, our sort of initial drive wasn't to make money. It was more to create a create an ideal. <laughs> and, um, and yes, it did become a business, absolutely. But, you know, the initial stages was to look at the mistakes that were being made through the racing and try to create something that was a little bit more, um, more focused and allow that to evolve where did you get the name chuff chuff okay that's an interesting story because um the as i said the initial ones were on on a boat and um you know what once we got to the point where we were actively promoting these events we got a guy to uh to create to do a, a graphic for us and he drew a little little kid's boat and a funnel and coming out of the funnel was chuff chuff <laughs> so that became the name so 
So basically on the actual, the, the person that created the um, the visual, he wrote Chuff Chuff and people just locked on to that? Just locked on to that? No, we, lo- we thought this was a great name. Let's, you, let's call the parties Chuff Chuff Parties. <laughs> this is what I mean. You can't make this stuff up. This is what makes it so fantastic. And let me tell you, because I always thought... Chuff Chuff was like some sort of female thing. Like they look really pretty. I'm thinking back in the day, I don't know what the, and now you're telling me because, oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> Let me tell you why I say that. It just felt like it was speaking to women more so than, a, you know, like it wasn't a male dominated sounding brand. It was more like very, you know, let's go to the chuff chuff. You know, it's like, oh, sounds so bushy, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, ironically, I mean, there is some truth in that because um, I think, again, possibly because of our background, because, you know, we were brought up in a very diverse area. And um, consequently, you know, particularly when chuff chuff started getting, um, became, started becoming popular, you know, we, we certainly, um, try to incorporate that diversity so there was a, a there was always a big gay following for it and also it was very female friendly because um again i suppose looking at the mistakes that were being made by um the, the bigger organizations was that you know they didn't really give that service or that attention to detail so you know we ensured that people were safe and people were you know when they came to our environment they were they were looked after. They were um, the service was was um, of a high high standard, and as a result of that, I think it did not only it it it, um, it certainly um, attracted a gay audience, and it certainly attracted a female audience. And as a result of the female audience, the uh, the men followed. <laughs> so, so it was uh, you know, it, and again, you know, it was it, it was it was it planned up to i don't even think it was planned it just kind of happened that way and it was happened that way because of the uh, the negativity that was going on in other areas of the industry at the time so we kind of i suppose we we spotlighted that and made that our business to ensure that the people that did come to our events did feel safe and they and allowed them to enjoy the uh, the experience jim if you didn't do the chuff chuff or the boutique, or any of this this road, what would you have been doing as a profession now? That's a, a that's a really interesting question. I, I I'm I don't know to be honest with you. I mean, I I, I do. Um, I mean, presently, I, st- I I do some teaching, so I, I probably would have fallen into that line. You know, I, I when when we had the shop. You know, most most of the, uh, particularly the early days of the shop, most of the business would take place Thursday, Friday, Saturday. So I did a part-time English degree while we had the shop, which um, <laughs> which I suppose, you know, I, I felt when I left school, I'd never fulfilled my um, academic potential. I don't think I've ever, ever have, but uh, I, I, and I was always interested in um, reading and uh, always interested in literature so um i uh, i did a, a i did a part-time degree at what was what's now become birmingham city university it was at the time birmingham polytechnic so i used to go twice a week um 
to uh, to, uh, to study. <laughs> that's why I had to ask because I was wondering. I'm saying for someone that speaks so posh, so should we be ringing out Professor Ryan instead of Jim? I don't know. Maybe if you were aware of accents, you'd be you wouldn't call me that posh. I don't speak receive pronunciation by any by any stretch of the imagination. My accent is probably a little bit of a tinge of Irish with Birmingham intermingled. <laughs> On the road to success now, money pennies begins. The first party starts. Let's talk about where the first parties begin and where this takes you in the journey. Okay, so I mean, alongside this, I was evolving as a DJ. So, I mean, there's a lot, a lot of things going on in my life at, at that time, and um, so the Chuff Chuff party certainly gave me a platform, and I started getting bookings, and um, as a result of that, and Chuff Chuff evolved, and as I said, it became quite a phenomenon, and you know, it, it was. Um, it was certainly embraced by the uh, by the uh, dance music press. They would come to the events and um, and and it became a, a bit of a national. It was a national phenomenon, you know. It was it wasn't just you know a Birmingham-based situation. So we got to the point where we realised that this is getting too much to handle, and we didn't really. We were quite precious about it. We didn't really want to. Um, we didn't really want to make Chuff Chuff into a weekly event. And obviously at the time, so this would have been 1992, 93. So, you know, the the, the, the club scene was starting to develop. And, you know, we used to go to the Hacienda regularly. We used to go to, um, and, and obviously we did Chuff Chuff in Venus, you know, it, uh, Venus, which, which I, don't, I think you may have DJed there in Nottingham. Um, the Milk Bar, we became friends with Nicky Holloway. And so, so the Balearic scene, as it became uh, became known, was kind of evolving as well at the same time. So, um, so we saw the club scene. So the rave scene sort of was was moving into the club. So we saw that happening, and and and, and were contributing it, contributing to it to a certain extent by bringing, you know, by bringing the chuff chuff thing into a club, as well as doing the one off parties. So that kind of gave us the impetus to um develop the the chuff chuff to develop something other than chuff chuff into a club environment and we didn't really want to uh, as i said we didn't really want to we wanted to maintain this sort of one-off concept that chuff chuff had become and um 1992 christmas 92 we did it we did a an event in a club in birmingham and um Christmas Eve, I think it was, and there was ourselves and um, the Wobble Guys, which was a, which was Phil Gifford's brand in Birmingham, and um, we did a one-off Christmas Eve event in Bonds, which eventually became the home of Miss Money Pennies, and uh, we, I think. Gordon Kay and John of the Please Women DJed for us on this particular occasion, and it was it was a good event, great event. And um, then we, a little bit later, the Q Club opened. We did the first. I don't know whether you've ever heard of the Q Club. It was, I suppose, to a certain extent, one of the most iconic clubs in in Birmingham. And we did the first 
four events in the in the Q Club, but it wasn't branded wasn't branded Chuff Chuff or Molly Pennies. It was branded um, the Silver Slipper, and and it was. Um, I mean, this was a big old. I don't, I don't remember that Q Club thing. That's kind of great to me. Yes, uh, um, and um, we did four events, um, and first two were roadblocks and it just slowly diminished <laughs> and, and um then the son of the guy that owned bonds um came into the shop and said are you interested in doing doing a, a club night at um at bonds and this would have been uh august 1993 i think and so let's go down and have a look but obviously we've done that event let's go and see what it's like and um what's the sound system like the normal things that you would would want to uh, want to ensure were um up to standard for uh, a weekly club event and we august 93 we started money pennies which was essentially an extension of the values that we created from chuff chuff repackaged renamed and and the name quite obviously was the association with bonds, Miss Money Pennies. That's how the name came about. And you know, we I suppose because we had a, a not a particularly good experience at the Q Club, um, it didn't really like we didn't really see money pennies having any longevity whatsoever. We thought, yeah, let's have give it a go and let's see what happens. And you know, there was no preconceived ideas, there was no plans whether it was whether it would um have any longevity at all we just thought let's let's give it a go and you know what you've got to bear in mind coincidentally we were still running the shop i was djing so we had a lot of things going on in our lives and and um you know so it's it, it was uh, it, and plus you know the chop chop event so it, it was not um was it was it perceived that it was going to be the success that it became definitely not you know that was probably you know, I remember New Year's Eve, every New Year's Eve, we ran, we ran Money Pennies for 13 years every Saturday in Birmingham. And every New Year's Eve, I'd scratch my head and think, how long more is this going to last for? You know, you just couldn't really think that, you know, a club night would have such a, would, would connect so, so vigorously with people. And, uh, and again, you know, I suppose because, where it was it was not in the city center it was on on just on the outsides of the city center it was probably nearer nearer um a place called newtown which was quite a, a dodgy area in birmingham and um you know and people from all over the country and the world as as, as the years went on visited this little site <laughs> well let me tell you why I, and I know why, because I remember DJ Magazine centerfold section. Bam, you open it up, and there you see these beautiful women in the pictures. They always knew music magazine, mix mag. They knew how to shoot you guys to the point where it exploded internationally. And then, of course, all the guests that you had play alongside you. Alongside. Well, I mean, we had everybody playing for us. I mean, it was really kind of interesting because, you know, initially there was a 
you know, the, the, it was very much focused on UK DJs when we first uh, when we when it first came about. Um, and there was, I suppose, there was a selection. There was Graham Parks. There was Paul Oakenfold. There was Danny. There was um, Mark Moore used to play for us regularly. John of the Please Women. Um, Lisa Loud, Smoking Joe. Um, so there was, a, you know, a real, and I could go on. There was a real collection. Tony DeVis, I can't forget Tony DeVis because we managed him as well for a while. Um, and so, the, you know, there was a little, there was a core of DJs, uh, including myself in that, that were just doing the circuit around the UK. And um, and we, you know, it, it, it was, it, and, and I suppose a lot of the clubs were very much, playing the same soundtrack. There wasn't a lot of music being produced in those days. So you, you the music quite often would be repeated throughout the night. And and um, it wasn't until a little bit later that we, you know, and, and yet, you know, we, we, we established ourselves essentially because the, uh, what we, number one, we had a diverse audience, uh, again, predominantly because it was Birmingham based. So it was Asian, white, black, gay, straight, uh, very female-friendly. So that was a, a, a real selling point for us. And secondly, we focused, as because, again, our experience as a result of going abroad and, and, and experienced a lot of clubs in various locations internationally, we knew that the, the key for a good night out wasn't music, obviously, was incredibly important, but there had to be a visual element as well. So we would, we would, um, you know, we we had a production team that were putting, addressing the club on a weekly basis, and also um, the uh, dancers, the drag, the other elements that ensured that there was just more to a club than just simply going to listen to a soundtrack. There was a visual experience that was going, and that gave us our notoriety, I think. That gave us our unique selling point at that time. And um, and that became as much of a focus to us as the music. So the components that you are providing are great music, fantastic talent, the visual, the beautiful crowd, gay street, all the above, multiracial. Hello, are we still on? Yeah, we still there. Okay, multiracial. The whole thing. You 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 you're bringing a ton of components, and it's working. And it's working very well because you had the right place and the right state to do it as well. Yeah, and I think in in addition to that, because because it was getting su- such notoriety through the various. Um, through the various magazines and what have you, we also attracted quite a quite a celebrity-based audience as well. So, you know, there was, who was coming regularly? Um, Robbie Williams, Headshot Boys, um, oh, um, Heather Small would be there on her own, dancing next to the DJ booth. I remember one occasion I was DJing there and, Robbie Williams stumbles into the booth and says, oh, "Is it all right if I if I, uh, if I get on the lighting as get on the lights and do the lighting job?" I said, "You carry away." Lots of sports people. I mean, it, it was a real, and I suppose because we were living it, living the living the experience, it 
to a certain extent went over our heads. It became normal. It became normalised that these so so and so's coming down tonight. Will you will you make sure this person's looked after? And I think you kind of, kind of didn't really sort of it didn't really register until uh, possibly later on in life when you're not doing as much. But you just think, good lord, this was Birmingham. This was an industrial city that was essentially quite often forgotten about, and we were attracting. I suppose, in many respects, to a certain extent, we were the Studio 54 of the, the dance world in, in the UK at the time. And that's a big statement to make, I think. But nevertheless, I think we were. Exactly. I mean, when you really look at the Pepsi industrial city, like you say, and you're bringing this house sound, and it's working. And it's not working with just a few hundred people, a few thousand a weekend. Sorry, I lost you then, Lenny. What I was saying was, I hope you can hear me. I was Sorry, Lenny, I lost you again. Your, um, your. Weather may be getting really bad because we have having now. You may be seeing some some that's a group weather right now. <laughs> the internet's kind of internet's kind of messing up somewhat. Let's see that he removed, bring him back. I think we're having a little bit of an issue right now, guys. Let's see if we can bring him back. Are we okay now, Mr. Florian? Yeah, yeah, good, all good. What I was saying was you're in an industrial city playing soulful mixed with vocals and Black R&B dance, you would say, with the English side of it, okay? And it's working. All the components are working for you. When does it stop working the way you want it? You know, where does it come to a point where it's been going so good that as good as things are, you get those moments like with the roller coaster, it drops down. When is that you start to see a change? Um... I think we were very fortunate in the sense that the um, because it was a it was a stepping stone because each stage the club the, which became the showcase I suppose for um, all the other endeavours that evolved as a result of that week to week um, that week to week club um, but we as a result of that going we we got interest from sponsors, so we had uh, sponsorship money being thrown at us. Um, we also started releasing albums, which is a, quite an interesting story that's, that came from that as well. Start, we, we had a record, uh, started signing signing music. We um, then, obviously, uh, uh, it became, not long after we started, started becoming a, a touring concept as well. So we were bringing the Money Pennies experience to other clubs around the UK. Um, 
Ibiza came about in 96 um, and that opened the, the world to, to the Money Pennies ideals. Um, so in terms of, it became more than just simply a club. So you, we became too busy just to simply, the club role, because we had a template, we knew what we needed to do. We needed needed to keep that interesting. And, and also as the years sort of developed, Musically, we became more a much more mature outfit as well, in the sense that we wanted a soundtrack that re- resembled or or categorised what Money Pennies was. So, as I said early early on, the the music was, I suppose, fundamentally fairly standard what everybody was playing. And yes, you know, I, I suppose Money Pennies was at the time um, very much a, a more vocal soundtrack but nevertheless um, most of the djs particularly the club djs were playing a very very similar soundtrack particularly if, if it was under the, the the house banner and um the the involvement i suppose musically came when we started putting the putting the albums out and um so that again as i said each step from touring to album releases to single signing to Ibiza to the world to uh, sponsorship it became a quite a big juggernaut in terms of a of, in terms of a business model did you uh, did you um did you release the first compilation album or did somebody else do the actual release part of it uh, well uh, what you mean uh, mean uh, through uh, as as through a label um so the first release that we did, and I mean it was it was a um, it was throwing ourselves deeply into the unknown. We we the first release we did was with a an organization called Total BMG, who were a distribution and marketing company. And um, we well, there was myself, Tony DeVitt, and Mark Moore on the first album. And um we put together the visual for the front, which was essentially one of the drag. Well, he, he wouldn't describe himself as a drag, but he was loosely drag. Uh, and and, a, and a, a couple of models that used to come to the club sort of surrounding him on a, a big throne sort of um, thing. And um, we allowed the DJs to ascend. We, we didn't follow the route that was... The commercial route that a lot of the other other um, brands were were we we actually gave the DJs the freedom to choose their own music for their for their mixes, and um, and as a result of that, I think that allowed us then to develop our sound. But in response, so Total BMG. Um, Tucked us up in a right deal, to be honest with you. You know, we we ended up uh, uh, putting the putting the concept together. They um, they put us, and, and we were totally naive. We didn't really know what we were doing in terms of signing a record deal. We thought, great, we're, we're putting a compilation out. Let's 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 have a little bit of this. But um, what we learned was, we, I mean, we I think we were in the you know, we sold 60,000 plus albums and we ended up owing the money. So it was was an interesting, (laughs) it was a very, it was a a baptism of fire, shall we say. But we learned as a result of that, learned 
So the second deal that we had, sorry, the second deal that we worked with was with KTEL. Now, we had a choice between Sony uh, Sony and KTEL. With Sony, they were offering us a an advance royalty deal, whereas with um, with KTEL, the offer that they uh, that was uh, placed was they paid us a consultancy fee. Uh, the deal was four albums a year, of which there was, I think, if I remember correctly, a hundred thousand pound marketing on each album. <laughs> so uh, we went with the smaller entity, but within that framework, we were very much involved in the licensing in the. Um, in, in the business side of it. So consequently, kind of learned the business of music as a result of that deal, as well as quite a, a quite a decent deal with them. So we, I think we did about, maybe about six albums with those guys. And also um, as a result of working with them, we, um, we, we started our first singles label as well. So it was a nice opportunity to learn the, learn the, the business of, of the mu- of a music business alongside uh, getting the opportunity to be paid for the for the pleasure and uh, and releasing uh, releasing a decent catalog of compilations so besides running the club now you're also doing the record business now because you said you were baptized by fire and you hear this everyone first album sold 60,000 units right imagine doing that now but check this out. I'm going to ask him the question how do you juggle everything because there's a lot going on um well we became a business essentially you know we were employing people we had within the within the um the office we had a a little dj agency we had a um a touring agency that we're looking after that side of things we had obviously we were evolving as the the music side of things was evolving the um the club, the tour, the tour, you know, so there was a lot going on. So we had a, a quite, a, as well as, and I mean, there was four of us. So there was myself, my brother Mick, um, Dermot, another brother, and Lee Garrick. So there was four of us that were kind of doing our separate roles. So I was obviously more involved in the music side of things. Mick was um, the businessman. Dermot was the marketeer. Lee was uh, the guy that was out on doing the promotion. So he was doing doing more of the the sort of um, networking, should we say. And then each little department had their own little small team of people that were, uh, that were doing their own, that doing their little bits of contribute. And then there was one really good person in the office that was kind of keeping control of us all. So it was, uh, yes, it was uh, quite a, um, you know, quite an enterprising little situation for, for many years. Do you miss all that? that way of working like the way we all used to work with the analog business you missed the 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 whole speed of it and everything goes to what we are doing today Uh, well i mean in addition to that the the shop evolved into a record shop so uh uh, you know uh, we were you know so we were supplying a lot of the DJs, house music and 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 different uh, house music, but a UK garage department, UK garage and drum and deck bass department, and um, and obviously the tickets and the tapes were running alongside that as well. So um, I, I think 
And, and it's similar with the fashion thing. You know, there was a network of people. You got to know a lot of people. It, seemed, it seems to me now it's a lot more insular. You kind of, everything is, um, it, it's less tangible. You know, it, I mean, I've, I've recently um, sort of put my toe back into the water in the music business. And, you know, I speak to, um, speak to our distributor, but you don't, meet people i mean i i have yet to kind of step step out and start doing the amsterdam and uh miami again but that was great it was a great community of people and that gave you the drive and the dynamics to continue and you know the people that you met were um and, and the new experiences that you had as a result of going to miami and going to going to clubs over there and hearing different people play and obviously that would influence the, the your, your mindset in terms of how you want the the sort of music that you would what would be of interest to you in the clubs so uh, you know it, it was great it was really hands-on and you know we were traveling a lot and doing Ibiza and doing everything along you know everything that was alongside it so it was a very um I don't know whether I'd have the energy to do it personally now, all those sort of things. But uh, yes, it was um, it was incredibly exciting and you know incredible in in the sense of the people that you met and and the community of people that were around you that were all of a similar mindset. Jim, what was the hardest part for you? Is this you know this this there's always that you know for some producers it's that hit record, for some it's the greatest events of all time. What was the the apex peak for this for you i would say and i mean this is really off the wall you know it, it's it doesn't it, you know and and we had all those experiences you know i signed a top 10 hit i um remixed lots of big named artists in the early 2000s but i would say the best experience i had as a result of this was uh, we <laughs> We put a um, a candidate up in the 1997 general election, <laughs> and it was it was essentially a PR campaign for the first album that we released, which was um, called Glamorous One. And I think I, I described to you the character that um, was part of the the visual uh, for the album, the the artwork for the album. And it was a, and I kind of loosely mentioned that, loosely described him as drag, a drag artist, which has kind of been a little bit unfair. He described himself, and I remember him saying this clearly: "I'm I'm not a drag artist. I'm a I'm a human freak." That's how he described himself. And I mean, he's 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 just outstanding. And we we first. Bumped into this guy in in Ibiza. Uh, we were doing money pennies and we were just having a drink around Ibiza town. And this guy walked around the corner and he was, you know, he was in in um, platform shoes that were probably about I don't know, maybe about a foot and a half. And his outfit was just, you know, the, good lord, where does where did this fella come from or where did this person come from? I mean, it was incre an incredible vi uh, visual. So straight away, we took his took his details, and he was known as the Transformer, and he became the weekly door person. Weekly, it would be in the club. He'd kind of make his presence felt, and, you know. And and he would always make 
you, people would be just flabbergasted. So going back to the the um, the election, we decided, or I decided, that we would put a candidate up in the 1997 election, and this character was the candidate, and we chose this area of, and. I mean, if there's English people listening to this, they may remember this 97 election. The 97 election was incredibly important because it was uh, something like, I don't know, maybe 14 years of conservative rule in the UK, of which maybe 11 or 12 of those were Thatcher, the Thatcher era. So it felt quite a repressed time in Burma, uh, repressed time in, in um, England at the time or Britain at the time. and. Um, and there was one constituency um, in the UK, which was Tatton. And Tatton was a constituency that had a character and, and a member of parliament, a conservative member of parliament called Neil Hamilton. Now, Neil Hamilton was possibly one of the reasons why the Tory government at the time were getting a lot of negative press, because it was... It was um, found out that he was receiving cash, uh, ca uh, brown paper bags of cash from um, the owner of the, uh, what's the shop called? The owner of, what's the big swanky shop in London? Um, oh, God. Um, gosh. Anyway, so he was receiving cash from this this character. Al Fayed was the owner oh, of the Harrods, that's the one. Harrods, thank you, thank you, thank you. And he was receiving cash from um, Al Fayed to lobby Parliament. This came, this became mainstream news, and um, his seat, as a consequence, became the highest-profile constituency of this general election. I had a friend that lived in this, this uh, area. And I said to him, uh, we want to put this candidate up. It's a PR stunt. We want to put this candidate up. Showed him the visual of the candidate. I said, can you, you had to get 10 people to ratify your um, your uh, candidate. And he got managed to get all his neighbours to sign this, uh, this uh, candidate, of which we called Miss Moneypenny, the transformer. <laughs> and as it happens in this constituency, the main parties pulled away because there was this war correspondent called uh, Martin, Martin, the man with the white suit, Martin, Martin, anyway, they, he was, he, this guy was going up again. So it was the man in the white suit, the war correspondent, no association with any political party and Neil Hamilton. So it was essentially good versus evil. So we decided to, as a result of my friend who lived in Tatton or just outside Tatton, getting the, the 10 people that could ratify our our um, our character, our potential MP, um, to uh, sign him off. So we went through three weeks of campaign <laughs> up in this area. And I mean, it was, it was one of the most uplifting weird experience because we kind of got into the politic of it then it was uh you know it, was, it no longer became a pr stunt even though it was essentially a pr stunt and um we um because of the nature and the visual nature of this character we 
I mean, the press that we, I mean, if, if, if we'd have paid for the press for this, it would have cost, I don't know, millions. We had all, we had front page um, press with all the, all the, um, most of the tabloids, numerous broadsheets. So the Guardian, I think, did a front, and um, we had NBC News following us. <laughs> the, uh, um, Sky News on the first day that we brought the candidates up. So he, I mean, it, it, it was, um, I mean, it was just a phenomenal campaign. And it was, again, it was all kind of done on the hoof. We didn't plan anything. We, uh, Other than the fact that we knew when people saw this character, they were going to go, wow, what the hell is this? So it was, uh, and so I think as an experience, you know, actually sort of tapping into the, um, into the elite of, the British political system. That was probably the most exciting, uh, exciting situation that I got involved in as a result of the money pennies, the club situation. So, you know, I think it would be far outreached um, remixing of releasing singles or, or, I mean, up to a point, I, I mean, I think, you know, DJing experiences are second to none. Oh. And, and I suppose there's yes. a story that I can add yes. to that. Um, but I think it's just an individual thing that you would have never, never in a million years found yourself involved in uh, to have um, experienced something like that as a result of a little club in the backwater of Birmingham. You just would never, never in a million years think that that was going to happen. Something like that would happen. So I think, yes, that was an experience and a half. How how close did, the, did he... Did he... How close did he have a chance of even winning this? Oh, no, no chance, no chance whatsoever. You know, not a cat in hell's chance. <laughs> but, but the, but the, the visual itself, you know, was, um, you know, it, it was going to make a mark. You know, people were going to turn around and think, "What on earth is this? Oh, this is a candidate for, for, uh, you know, it, it totally made a mockery of." The electoral system up there <laughs> because we were invited because of the way the nature of the way that it works in the uk and i don't know whether it's similar in america is that you have what's called the representation of people's act so every candidate that has that's uh, on a, on a ticket has got a right to have a voice so for interviews so if there was debates that were and i mean a kind of a really interesting situation we have a political a political show in the uk that's run for years which is called Newsnight, and um the producer of Newsnight, uh it was faxed at the time faxed us and said would you um would you uh, take away your right so that we can have an interview with um martin bell was the man in the white suit sorry the war correspondent and neil hamilton on Newsnight." Hang on a minute. Little click came up. Said absolutely not. We want to be in this in this interview. <laughs> not a chance at hell are we pulling our rights away. So th this uh, this fax came backwards and forwards. The, the one of the um, one of the characters who actually presents the show phoned us up and said, you know, you've got to do something. So we we listed a, a list of twelve questions that they had to ask on the show. So that we would pull our rights from uh, appearing on it, <laughs> and every question had something like uh, "Miss Money Pennies suggests this, that, and the other." So name check Miss Money Pennies throughout through throughout the um, throughout throughout the questions that we 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 uh, sent in their direction. So, yes, it was. I mean, it, like I said, we kind of nearly touched the uh, 
the um, the way that power operates in this country. I mean, talk about making even money pennies more famous now because of it. And also, you know, you I mean you had a free press machine on a whole different level, not just the DJ trade mags, but you now you have political genre stuff going on, mixing in with your nightly type of weekends, you know? No, totally. I mean, it was it was bizarre, you know. And, and as I said, you you became totally absurd because I was kind of pushing that that uh, project. You know, it was a bit of a, a blip of an idea, and it was me and a friend of mine that were kind of pushing this project, and um, we just got totally into it. You know, we had we had uh, we hired uh, a girl to produce a documentary, so we were we were being followed by cameras throughout this. So there is a documentary on on YouTube somewhere, and we didn't we didn't manage to, what the plan was to try and sell the documentary. We kind of left it a little bit late to. Uh, to a, a UK, but I think there was something like, and I still have this footage somewhere, something like, um, I don't know, maybe 36 hours of footage that were produced as a result of this campaign that we were doing up in, uh, up in Tatton. So it was, uh, it was quite a, quite a, an interesting situation that we found ourselves in. You know, it's this is all before Glitterbox, everybody. This is all before any of that stuff that happened. This is during the era of cream was going on, money pennies, ministry nights, ministry of sound. So, you know, they're writing the story pre to nothing else like it before. That's what makes it. I never knew about this, this election thing. This blew me away just now. Jim, that really blew me away. Yeah, it was, uh, like I said, and and I suppose the ironic thing is, is that, you know, you never really, as a result of a couple of guys opening a clothes shop that evolved into a a, um, a DJ career as a, and evolved into a um, a club night, you would have never dreamed in a million years as, you know, when we were young boys or young men coming up with these kernels of ideas of what should we do with our lives? You never thought in a million years that this was... This was going to happen. No, you were going to be rock stars. That was the initial part. Oh well, that was the thing. That's I think that was always the the kind of um, the uh, the the dream, maybe <laughs> that there was. Uh, we're going uh, to follow Led Zeppelin. We're going to follow the Beatles. We're going to be the next the Ryans. The Ryans. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> But you got to give us now. I mean, we we know we know the high part, and we hear of all the accomplishments. What makes you pull back and stop doing it? What changed? Change. Um, I would say. Uh, I mean, it was quite clear when when we stopped when we stopped doing Miss Money Pennies in Birmingham, the weekly club night. Um, and you know, we we kind of evolved not only as promoters, we ended up owning that club as well. So we became club owners as well as that. And I think that that becoming, I suppose, liquor sellers rather than creatives, that took a little bit of the shine out of um, out of the business model, if you like. And I'm. Uh, and I say that very loosely, you know, having the, the stress of 
running bar staffs, having um, people managing it, having to try to get a, an event in there on a seven-day-a-week basis rather than just one night a week that became uh, the money pennies. That changed, certainly changed the dynamic of the business. And, and then um, I think we eventually sold the club and stopped doing money pennies on a regular basis. And that kind of lost the momentum then and lost the dynamic of the people that were working, uh, working on it on a day-to-day basis. And uh, eventually, and I think with me and my brother, we've worked together for, I don't know, maybe 25 years, maybe 20 plus years anyway from, early 80s up until 2007 or 8. So we kind of, you know, life change, you get married, you've got kids, you, you know, um, uh, and we, uh, I suppose, I mean, we never, never, there, there was no animosity there, but I think we just needed to break free a little bit from that, um, from that scenario. And I think, you know, the club not work, you know, not happening on a week to week basis certainly allowed that to happen. Did that, did that lead you to keep going on as an international DJ? And I'm not going to say international DJ. I'm going to say the James Bond of our industry. <laughs> I mean, I, I was very fortunate because, you know, my DJing career fundamentally was uh, was interlinked with the Money Pennies and Chuff Chuff situation. You know, it allowed me not only to become um, recognized in my own right as a DJ but you know a lot of the gigs that I was doing was as, as I mentioned before were associated with the Miss Money Pennies situation because we were touring it we were doing Ibiza we were doing the Mediterranean uh, Tenerife um, Mallorca um, Ayanapa all these sort of places around around on a, on a on summer by summer for years on end so you know so it gave me, it certainly, well, it was more than a platform for me as a DJ and allowed me to sort of explore the music side of things as a result of um, the licensing, compilations and and um, and doing production work as well. So, you know, it gave me an opportunity to sort of open that interest that I, I possibly got into, into the scene in the first place for because if you remember the initial conversation, the guy that I met at the university that I played the kind of taught me how to play the bass guitar was, uh, you know, that was where my, my passion came about. But, um, you know, it, it was never, I suppose, from working in that environment, I never fully focused on DJing. I, I did DJ and I, you know, I, I was relatively successful as a result of it, but, you know, it didn't, uh, you know, I think if there's a, a slight blip of a regret, and, and I dare say my DJ career would have never happened if it hadn't been for Money Pennies and Chop Chop, it would have been focused totally on the DJing side of things, which I suppose since the Money Pennies uh, uh, situation is not as, uh, well, certainly not as active as we were, you know, it's, uh, it's allowed me to become a little bit more focused on the DJing side of things and put things into place that, um, has allowed me to um i wouldn't say i mean the 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 development occurred a long time ago but to become a little bit more focused on a um a sound maybe a a freedom because money pennies even though it was we 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 created our own sound to a certain extent again it it 
on an individual basis, at times you felt that you couldn't completely uh, allow yourself. You, you were you were in the the threads of the money penny scenario rather than the individual DJ. So to a certain extent, you had to. Well, and and it was it was a, my own creation to a certain extent, but you had to kind of follow follow a template that was associated with the Miss Money Pennies brand, which was fine. I had no problems with that, but to, but that was kind of in the forefront of your focus rather than thinking if you had been an individual DJ, would it have been slightly different in terms of how you would have gone about your your musical uh, journey? Right, and that's why I asked that that question because you know. It, things change because of circumstances and you had a brand that needed to be met because you had different people there saying that there's no retirement in place for you, right? You're still strong and active now. Yeah. I, I mean, the, um, as I said, the money pennies, um, label has, regenerated itself as a result of a track that I signed from a young producer about six months ago. And um, we've recently released it. A young fella called uh, Melak, Get Down. It's a lovely little funky, funky number. Um, and I'm, I'm just hoping that, you know, what I would like to see, because I think because Money Pennies was such a showcase um, and we as DJs, I probably get more music sent to me now than I did, you know, and we used to always get, obviously get lots of music sent to us, but there's, we're inundated on, with music. You know, there isn't a day that goes by the 20, 30 um, pieces of music are, are emailed through. And, you know, I certainly haven't got the time to listen to everything. I'll pick and choose and maybe have a day a week whereby I'll go, go through tunes. But, there's a lot of talent and there's a lot of brilliant house music being produced. And I would say equally as, if not more so than ever before. And there's a little bit of a, I feel a little bit regretful because that music isn't a lot, isn't being showcased um, in the way that it was 20, 10, 15, 20 years ago, where there were so many clubs that were playing a soundtrack of that nature, you know, and it just seems to me that, you know, there's, there's quality, quality music being produced and young young producers out there that would like to take the next step. And I suppose because, you know, there's a nurturing part of me that would like to be able to um, to develop something under the Money Pennies music banner to um, which has got a legacy, obviously, and has got a legacy within the house music for, forum to give young up and coming producers an opportunity to be able to um, to develop their their skill and you know who knows I, I've got no plans with how money pennies other than the possibility of maybe one party next year and that's got because it's money pennies is money pennies thirtieth birthday next year so there's a possibility I'm in discussions with um, various venues so this may or may not come off I don't know as yet I've got two little project well I've got three projects but two projects that are focused possibly um, to do with the 30th birthday, a Miss Moneypenny's Gospel House Choir, which I'm in discussions with somebody at the moment, uh, a little gospel choir that's, uh, that worked for me in the orchestra show that I did a couple of years ago. And uh, I'm, I'm in discussions with an incredible venue in Birmingham, 
Now, if I can pull that off, I will do it another Money Penny's 30th birthday. If it doesn't, I won't. Um, so, but who knows? You know, I mean, Money Penny's, as I said before, I used to scratch my head on New Year's Eve every year and think, well, you know, another year. This is this is unbelievable. So, you know, there's experience there and there's an understanding of how to put an event on and how what type of soundtrack will be applicable to the audience that you would that ideally would like to come to it so and i think you know the scene is in real need for new house music producers of an of a younger age or younger age group and um you know if if there is um part of me that would like to be um still involved in is to, to find that young talent and regenerate that interest to a certain extent that we all lived and lived lived to the full for many many years which was great fun and we're still not stopping the living. No, no, totally not. No. <laughs> First of all, let's just say this: congratulate on the 29th years of Miss Money Pennies. Congratulations on the new release coming. Who was the producer again? Producer again? It's a guy called Melak. Melak, everybody, find him. Yeah. yeah. Are you getting itchy? Sorry, Lena. I said, are you getting itchy to start making records? Well, ironically, I um, I did my first remix for probably oh god, it's probably five six years this year. Uh, an old friend of mine, a French guy who um, who is deeply involved in the music industry, phoned me up and said, uh, would you like to do a remix uh, by an artist called Joanna Saint-Pierre, um, Don't Stop the Music? And I thought, oh, do I really want to be doing this? <laughs> and um, I just thought, sod it, let's, let's have a go. And the remix is getting lots of play. I mean, it's, okay, it's on a very underground basis, but it's... Uh, it's been picked. It's been trickling along for probably three, four, five months now, and um, again, who knows? And and I, I'm as a result of that, I probably you know I'm, I'm tentatively um, thinking about maybe doing a, a, a track of my own. Um, I've got a few ideas that um, that are uh, that could possibly be exploited. So let's see. <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying anything at this stage, but yeah. So uh, yeah, I, I, you know, it, it, it was great being back in the studio. It was um, it was uh, great having a track that had got some recognition. I you know, I just did it as a bit of a favour for my for my old friend Nicholas Bullistan. I didn't really expect anything other than you know, I was grat- grateful that he was uh, that he was putting it on the release. But it's as I said, it's slowly getting. Um, getting a little bit of notoriety. Did you feel rusty when you went back in? Um, well, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm, I, I use Ableton. I can use Logic a bit, but I tended to move more towards Ableton as the years have gone. Um, I, I'm not an engineer, uh, so I do work with somebody. Um, uh, and, I always, I always felt a little bit unsure of myself when I first went into the studio, but 
I think, you know, once once you've got a clear picture of something that you want and and um and listening to that track, I, I kind of wanted to recreate a sound to a certain extent that I was that I was producing maybe 20 years ago. So there was elements, obviously a bass line has always been important to me because I play the bass. Um so there was, um, you know, there was a, a vision for what I wanted to have in that track, and I think um, if I go in totally cold, I'm I'm useless. <laughs> but if if I go in with a sort of an idea and I want to sort of see that idea through, I'm I'm I can I can work up with it. But um, you know, I'm never never 100 percent sure of myself. I don't go in there overconfident, thinking that I can I'm going to create the the greatest track ever written. It's always sort of feeling a bit tentative about it and whether uh, bit, I'm a bit unsure of myself. Sure. So, um, yeah. I'm going to give you this last question because um, you covered a lot. With all the successes and all the wonderful parts, do you have any regrets to anything that went on? No, absolutely not. I think, you know, I've been, I count myself incredibly lucky that I found myself in a situation um, that was never really planned and um, evolved into something that Wait. became... Wait, you're sorry you didn't become a priest after experiencing the life you lived? <laughs> no, no. Well... <laughs> Yeah, the, the Catholic Church, as I said, is probably. I'm glad I didn't become a priest. Definitely not. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I've got absolutely no regrets. I think you know, as I said, I count myself incredibly lucky. You know, and I could probably talk to you for another five, six hours recording because these these memories are just starting to churn churn around my head of other situations that arose that could potentially. Um, be of interest so yeah it, it's it's uh you know i'll never i'll never be short of a story to tell somebody in the pub put it that way <laughs> as long as you've been doing this as long as we all have trust me you have a, a amazing and long stories <laughs> as everybody has learned with me at this show this has been a forum to bring out things like, like I said, we never knew you were going to be a priest, no less ever saw this become a career. And that's what you, when you speak to others, our peers, you hear the same. Started out as something fun and then it became a business. And you guys created a business model. You had the, the clubbing events, you had the DJ agency, and you also even took care of Tony DeVitt. Yeah, yeah, and we also signed. Just to, sorry to interrupt you. We also signed um, Tom Novi, your body. I don't. Do you remember that track? So we brought that into the UK. I signed it from Germany as a result of one of our resident DJs bringing a promo into the uh, into the office and saying, "Jim, have a listen to this." Ken Fan, who's now um, uh, Cafe Del Mar main residence and uh this is a fantastic record and again it, it's just really weird how accidents happen you know right place at the right time a little bit of uh, good fortune and um obviously found out who was uh, who who was uh, working the record in germany phoned them up 
did a an incredible deal with them. <laughs> it was uh, we picked the record up for next to nothing, and um, and the the week I signed it, the record was played, and not by my doing. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, maybe other people would probably put their hands up and that, you know, we worked this record. It was still, you know, the 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 ink was still drying on the deal with the with the uh, the German label that was original that we, we that we signed it from. The week that we signed it, Pete Tong played it on um, Essential his Essential Mix Show. I had every cat chasing me for that record. Let me make sure everybody stands. Pete Tong plays the record. Boom. Boom. Yep. No, I mean, it was it was just I had Simon from Defected. I had Ministry of Sound. I had Positiva. I had everybody chasing. And um, in the end, we did a deal with Ministry with this. And, um, and again, you know, the record industry, you've, you've got to dot your I's and cross the T's, particularly in those... The one stipulation that we had in that deal, I wanted it. I, I I didn't want it signed. I didn't want it to be released through Data, which was the um, which was the um, uh, Ministry of Sound single label at the time. I said I wanted it to be branded Miss Money Pennies, <laughs> and in the in the uh, the legals that was all stipulated within the framework of the deal. Do you know how big the Miss Money Pennies branding was? See what I just said to you? Did you have any regrets? Bingo. Bingo. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, it was a learn. To me, it wasn't a regret because it just made me learn that these buggers are working this. You've got to be so fucking clear, careful with them. Excuse my French, but you know, honestly, you've got to be. You've got to be totally. And the only way you get wise to them is by situations that arise like that. You know, our branding was tiny. You could barely see it. And, you know, it would have launched, you know, my, my vision for it was to launch the Money Pennies label on the back of this situation with Ministry of Sound, you know, which is not an unreasonable ask. But No, and that would have been the most sensible thing for it, to be to, to jump off the, what I call the implosion, that ex- the explosion to run with. To run with. No, definitely. But... You know, like I said, I picked the record up for next to nothing. Pete Tong played it without me doing anything about it. So there was a lot of positives about this situation. It was only when we got down to the nitty gritty of the business that you've got to, you've got to have your wits. Well, we did have a we hired a lawyer. We, you know, and we did all the right things, but it didn't quite work out in the way that we wanted it to work out. But, you know, as we all say, you win some, you lose some. I mean, it was a win-win because there's really nothing financially that you really got into. But it would have been a win-win in a big way if Money Pennies would have gotten that thrust. Thrust. Well, well, I mean, on, on the other hand, you know, as I said, the the from a financial position, you know, we got a great advance from them. The um, we we continued getting um, royalties for two or three years, which were obviously shared with the artists. But, you know, it was from a financial position, it was fantastic. But the vision from my point of view was I wanted to see money pennies on that, on that sleeve in a big way. And that didn't quite, that didn't quite work out. So I would say the majority of it was positive, but, um, 
you know, unfortunately, the the, the vision for the the bigger picture didn't quite didn't quite materialize. Everyone, everyone, keep watching Jim Chef Ryan. Some of us step in holes, right? This man steps in knee high doo doo and comes out smelling like roses every time. <laughs> <laughs> Nearly every time. We love this guy. He's talented, great DJ, is what I call an icon, a trendsetter, all the above. And 30 years of a brand is nothing to shake a stick at. That, to me, is what makes something iconic. It's called Everlasting. So congratulations to Mr. Ryan. And his family, because I know his family was behind him in a very big way. As he said, his brother was there and everybody else that Jeff Jefferson's here. Everybody's here rooting you on still. They love what you do. And we all, you know, appreciate you in a very big way. Very big way. So don't stop, Mr. Ryan. Stop, Mr. Ryan. (laughs) On that note, everyone, thank you to True House Stories. I'll let Mr. Ryan say goodnight to you and we will see you all next week. See you all next week. Good night and thank you for listening and uh, keep an eye out for the 30th birthday and for Melik, get down. And one last thing, and Ibiza the musical, which is coming very soon as well. So uh, lots of uh, lots of little projects on the go. I'm so pretty. I'm so pretty. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> It'll be on Broadway. Wait, wait, he said he's got a Broadway production coming of Miss Funny Betty's? <laughs> did, how, wait a minute. We're not letting you go for a sec. How did you leave that one out? Where is that going to be? What's the plan for that? I trademarked the name. I mean, I, I kind of mentioned earlier on to you about my daughters. Both of them are very deeply involved in theatre. One is just finishing her... Um, her drama school, um, her MA at Central Drama School, and the other one's a theatre correspondent for um, The Guardian and uh, The Independent. And our kind of family thing was um, was musical theatre. And uh, and I had one of these sort of, one of these moments when I think we were watching, uh, we went to see We Will Rock You, and I thought, hang on a minute, there's a dance music opportunity here that has yet to be exploited. So I kind of curdled around a few ideas and um, a beat of the musical, I thought, that is the name that will potentially ingratiate itself with the world of dance music and hopefully possibly more beside. So the first action I did was trademark the name. This was before I kind of, I thought, this is something that can't be... Uh, you know, if I'm thinking about it, there's a possibility somebody else will think about it. Um, I wrote a script with um, with a, a with a friend of mine, um, and we loosely based the script on on the Tempest. So I'm using my sort of literary background, um, and it's it's essentially, um, I mean, it has got authenticity because it's essentially um, a working around the experience or one night experience that I had in Ibiza which was um, 
which was the, um, we did a closing party in 9-11. And it's kind of, that's an incident in there, but it's the narrative is driven by that situation. Uh, I'm talking, I'm in, in the process of um, working with a theatre in Birmingham, the rep at the moment. So I, I'm, I'm, we're, that we're t- talking to um, directors at the moment, and um, who knows? It may. It, it, I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably confident that you know after maybe, and this has been a this has been a a project that's been on the go for maybe I'd say I finished writing the script maybe seven or eight years ago. So it's been trying to find a route into that theatre world, which is you know it's like, it's again you know I'm a I'm a man from the club scene, the dance scene. I'm a DJ, so, you know, they 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 don't look upon people of my nature too favourably. So to try to uh, to knock those da- doors down have not, has been a very, very slow process, but we're getting there. So we will see. And what's even more ironic, I found footage from that particular event in Ibiza. I told you I've got a... I used to carry a, a camera around with me, so I found footage. So there's an extension to this idea that can go a little bit further than just simply the musical. So we will see. <laughs> Still trying to maintain that vision. <laughs> He's got movies. Hollywood's calling. Right. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for tuning into True House Stories. Thank you, Jim Chef Ryan. Good night, everyone. Take care. Stay with us, Jim.